Well, good morning, church, and uh, stand with me if you would. We're going to be reading in Luke 22, Luke 22, as we're getting uh, very close to the uh, cross, the Friday morning cross. This is Thursday night, this remarkable incident. 22-24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is the word of God, church. Please be seated. Okay, a dispute arises among the the disciples. That's no surprise. We already know they're a bunch of flawed folks just like you and I. The surprise is not the dispute, but the timing of the dispute. Thursday night, Passover night, solemn festival, Jesus' heart is heavy. He is talking about his suffering coming up. He's about to bear the sin of the world. He washes their feet, their muddy, smelly, dirty feet. With all of that, they start arguing who is the greatest. I mean, it almost sounds surreal. Are you kidding me? You can imagine, can't you, how it may have happened. They're expecting the kingdom to come anytime. Widespread expectation, the kingdom is coming. And they begin talking, well, what's going to be our place in the kingdom? You know, they're going to have a place in the kingdom. And then pretty soon, I'm going to have a greater place than you're going to have. I'm going to be closer to Jesus than you're going to be. And they begin arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Um, you know, when you, you think about that, we, we sort of think, oh, man, can't believe they did that that night. But, you know, at times we can be so petty also. We can be concerned about uh, recognition, honor. If people are not showing us the, the proper courtesy and respect and honor, do we get offended? Uh, do, do we uh, uh, vie subtly for attention to impress others with what we have achieved where we've been, who we know, who we've met, uh, how spiritual we are. Do we, do we ever, you know, do, do that sort of thing? You bet we do. Um, it's part of our humanness. Uh, we would not be so crass as to actually argue with somebody about, you know, I'm greater than you are. You know, we wouldn't go that far. But in more subtle ways, we can have just as much pride. Uh, Jesus is hearing this discussion or he knows it's going on. 
He doesn't excuse them. He doesn't sort of, uh, you know, boys will be boys. You know, that's just the way they are. No, no, that doesn't do. Uh, they're followers of me. They are uh, loyal servants of the servant. Uh, they are uh, in the kingdom of God, and that won't work. And so he responds to them, not by saying, this is going to be okay, no problem, guys. But he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. You know, they kind of, you know, high and mighty over them. They kind of exercise their authority. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. But, but, not so with you. You are to be different. The way of the world is not the way of my disciples in the kingdom. You're new people. You've got the living God in you. You've got the spirit of Christ in you. You, you are a child of the king. You are uh, you, are, you follow the one who came to die on a bloody cross in serving us. It will not do for you to go around trying to make yourself look good with others, promoting yourself, uh, trying to impress people with, you know, what you've done and who you are. That will not work if you're going to be my follower, but not so with you. One of the themes, church, of the New Testament is that God's people are different people. We're not the people we once were, and so we can't live like we once lived. And that includes this attitude of self-exaltation, wanting to be in the limelight, wanting prestige, wanting to look good with other people. Because we have a one-person audience now, and it's Jesus, Jesus alone. You know, in Romans 12, 2, Paul says to the church at, at, at Rome, he says, um, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You cannot change yourself, but God can change you. I mean, we can be just as pride-ridden, ego-centered, self-centered as any non-Christian but we can surrender our lives to God and, say, <clears throat> and we can say, God, I know this is not what you have for me. I know that's not who I really am. Would you deliver me? Would you rescue me? Church, we don't have to live like the world, vying for attention, which never brings peace and joy. Never. But we lie low and exalt Jesus. We lie low. We focus on others. We lie low and we're seeking to be more listeners than talkers, more givers than takers. In a few minutes, when you walk out of this room and across the foyer and across the parking lot, you will interact with a few people, or at least you'll see a few people. You could be kind of wrapped up in yourself. Who am I? How am I? You know, what am I looking like? And am I dressed good? Am I coming across good as I interact with people? You can be that way, or you can uh, be completely other-centered like Christ calls us to be. So then, you walk out of here, you're not focused on yourself, people giving me enough attention, courtesy, and respect, but rather you're focused completely on other people. Lord, is there somebody that needs a hug? Is there somebody that needs a smile? Is there somebody that, that you want me to pause and lay my hand on their shoulder and pray for them? You've got a completely different mindset because you're now a blood-bought servant of the living God. You're a follower of Jesus. And it makes all the difference. Not so with you, you're completely different. Uh, this orphan care, foster care, God has not called all of us to that. 
but many of you he has, and, and, and that just epitomizes servanthood. And, and some of you hold babies so parents can have a break to worship together. And, and some of you help us get on and off the parking lot. And, and uh, some of you work with our teenagers and uh, help the homeless and, and, and all kinds of ways. Uh, we do that with joy because Christ has called us to look beyond ourselves. How can we serve? Where is there a need that I can meet that God has called me to meet? That's who you are. Um, Paul Brand uh, has written one of my favorite biographies, top five biography. He's not a well-known figure, but he and Philip Yancey writes this, uh, his life story. I'm sure Yancey talked him into it. Uh, Paul Brand was a world-famous leprosy specialist. He's British, and he uh, spent his life basically in India helping uh, indigent uh, leprosy patients. Uh, he tells this story about a man who visited their leprosarium one day. This is what he says. He says, Uncle Robbie was a New Zealander who turned up at Valori one day unannounced. He was a medium-sized man, maybe 65 years old. I have a little experience in shoemaking, he said. I wonder if I could help you, if I could be of help to some of your leprosy patients. He says, I'm retired now and I don't need money, just a bench and a few tools. Well, the facts of Uncle Robbie's life leaked out slowly. We were amazed to learn that he had been an orthopedic surgeon, had in fact been chief of orthopedics in all of New Zealand. He had given up surgery when his fingers began trembling. These details had to be pried out of Uncle Robbie. He was much more animated talking about shoes. He had learned how to work with leather, how to dip it and stretch it over a mold, then fill in the hollow places with tiny scraps glued together. He would spend hours on a single pair of shoes and keep making custom adjustments until the patient's foot showed no more stress points. Uncle Robbie, no one called him Dr. Robertson, lived alone in a guest room at the leprosarium. His wife had died some years before. He worked with us three or four years, training a whole platoon of Indian shoemakers until he notified us one day, you know, I think I've done my work here. I know of another large leprosarium in the north of India and another on the coast. He departed, and over the next few years, Uncle Robbie left a trail of service in the major leprosariums of India. Watching him labor so tenderly over the damaged feet of leprosy patients, I could hardly imagine him in the prestigious, high-pressure environment of orthopedic surgery in New Zealand. He was an utterly unassuming man, and nearly everyone he met came to love him. No one ever felt sorry for Uncle Robbie. He was perhaps the most self-contented person I have ever met. He did his work for the glory of God alone. Church, I read that story. I read it before. I've told you about it before. By the way, that superb biography is in our bookstore and in our library. But, but can you imagine this story? Okay, he's in a leprosarium in India. I mean, enough servanthood and humility for himself. This man shows up. It turns out to be, you know, he's a, 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 an esteemed orthopedic surgeon. And he just wants to work with these leprosy patients and help them get shoes that are not going to do damage to their feet because they don't feel pain down there. And, and he gave his life in servanthood. I mean, here's a man who could, you know, go back and enjoy the scenery and the beauty and the, the standards of living in New Zealand or America or Europe or travel around and take it easy. But he goes, you know, his wife is that he goes as a servant. I just need a bench and a few tools. How Christ-like. I mean, that's, 
That's the spirit of Jesus Christ and his followers. Where is there a need I can meet? Where is there a person I can serve? Where is there somebody who needs to be listened to? Who is somebody I can pray for? Uh, in menial ways in your home. You're the, you're the first to, to do the, the small things, to serve. You know, the challenge of this, the challenge for me in this, is in the car. Um, you know, how do you respond when somebody cuts you off? Or you, do you, you know, oh, you know, do you just, you know, go on and on because your honor has not been respected? You know, that, that's a little bit challenging for me. Or, or how do you do, you know, in terms of uh, being a servant in your driving? That's even more of a challenge for me. Uh, but, but that's a big part of our life, life on the freeway. And, and that's where our servanthood is going to be tested. And, and uh, uh, the Lord's convicted me about that this week, again. Um, <laughs> no comment from my wife, please. Um, you know, I, I cannot change myself to become more of a servant. But God can change me because this is who I really am. As a follower of Christ, this is who I really am. And we, all of us, we can lie low and exalt Christ. And when we give ourselves to other people, when we become other-centered rather than self-centered, we're not like the Gentiles. We're not like the non-Christians. We, 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 we have a new life within us, the life of Christ. Um, there's nothing but joy and peace. Do you recall what Paul Brand said about this orthopedic surgeon who is now a shoemaker? He is the most self-contented man I have ever known. It always comes when we lie low and focus on other people. When we lie low and exalt Jesus. It always comes. Church, that is who you and I are. Let's live into it. What is God saying to you this morning about it? What's he have to say to you? Where in your life does there need to be uh, surrender to the servanthood of Jesus? Where in their life... At your work, at your at 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 H E B in the checkout, uh, at your home with your kids, where is God speaking to you about being a servant? This is who Jesus is. He said, "I am among you as one who serves." This is what I'm all about. In fact, Jesus said elsewhere in Mark ten forty five, he said of himself, he said, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve." And to give his life as a ransom for many. And the greatest example of that is when he dies on a cross, when he takes your sin and mine, and he pays for it. He came for us to serve us. He has always been a servant. Never think that Jesus became a servant when he took on flesh and died for us. Because it is God's nature to be a servant. In fact, he is the chief servant in the universe. Because servanthood is all about humility and love and focusing on others and not yourself. God is the greatest servant in the world. Church, it is our privilege to be the countercultural folks who experience the life in Christ of being a servant. What's God's calling for us? Okay, he goes on. In verse 31, shifts gears a bit. Simon, Simon. Okay, he's addressing Peter, whom he renamed Peter sometime back, but sometimes he calls him Simon. And now he repeats it twice, kind of, it must have sort of gotten his attention. You know, just after this argument about, uh, you know, who's the greatest? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
Must have been sobering for Peter to hear that. But he seems a bit undeterred by it. I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Now, a couple of things about this passage. In fact, there are several things. It is very significant for our spiritual lives. Okay, first of all, Satan demanded to have you, plural in the original, too bad that uh, the rest of the English language doesn't know that good uh, southern word, y'all, because it distinguishes singular you and plural you. What he's literally saying here is, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all. He's looking at all 12 of the disciples, or if there's 11 here now. Uh, Satan wanted to devour all 11 of them, that he might sift y'all like wheat, plural, both instances. So Satan is coming after all the disciples, not just Peter. But then Jesus, surprisingly, switches to the singular, focuses on Peter in verse 32. But I have prayed for you, singular, you Peter, that your faith may not fail. No doubt Jesus prayed for the others too, but he, he's especially talking to Peter here. Peter, you're the leader of this church. I prayed for you that your faith, Peter, would not fall. And when you, singular, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's a role for Peter. So Satan is coming after all of them, but Jesus is especially taking his time to press into Peter and to encourage Peter. Now think about this. This is the night before he's crucified. I mean, this is the greatest agony. Pretty soon, within an hour, he'll be sweating drops of blood. The prospect of bearing the world's sin and separate from his father is so great. He will sweat blood. But yet he is such a servant, so other-centered, that even at a moment of crisis like this, he is thinking about Peter, how he can encourage Peter, how he can pray for Peter, how he can let Peter know what's going to, Peter know what's going to be coming. Friends, that is a servant. And you and I will know that we have made some progress to being a servant when in our, our times of pain and suffering, we're not all wallowing in self-pity, but we are still focused on serving others. So often, when we are hurting, you know, the, the standard line in our culture is basically, i got to take care of myself. How foolish and silly is that? Sorry for those of you who've said that. And maybe you meant well by it. Maybe you meant the right thing. But we don't have to take care of ourselves. We come to God and He takes care of us. We focus on others and He takes care of us. We focus on Jesus and He takes care of us. We don't take care of ourselves. I know there's some basic care that we do, but uh, we focus on others always, even in our suffering, just like Jesus does here. Carl Menninger was a famous Christian psychiatrist of, of an earlier day based in Topeka, Kansas. They later moved the Menninger Clinic, the world-renowned Menninger Clinic, to Houston, Texas, where it is now. Carl Menninger was a, a devoted Christian follower. He was once asked, you know, if you're, you know, at the point of having an emotional breakdown, you're really hurting, what should you do? And everybody's expecting him to talk about getting psychiatric help. He doesn't. He says, lock your doors, go across the tracks, and find somebody to serve. Friends, that is Christ's way to restore your soul. Look outside of yourself. Don't wallow in yourself and be a servant. Look for someone. There's life there. There's joy there. There's peace there. It is completely countercultural. It is completely uh, Christ's way. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Jesus, in his hurting moments, he's thinking about Peter. He's encouraging Peter. Now, what else do we see here? We see that Satan comes after us. 
Do you remember some decades in the future when Peter, as a, as a devoted, humble, dependent uh, leader in the kingdom, writes First and Second Peter. And in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, there's that famous uh, image where he says, the devil is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Devour. You know, what a graphic picture just to kind of eat you alive. Ruin your marriage. Ruin your joy. Ruin the way you look at God. Ruin your life. That's, that's what Satan wants to do. It's always been his strategy. It's his strategy with us. Peter, Jesus warns Peter, Satan has demanded to have y'all eat you up. He's demanded to sift you like wheat, which apparently just to devour your soul and to, to cause havoc and to, to bring final harm to you. And then Jesus surprises it. By the way, did you notice that Satan... Uh, he's got to ask permission before he does anything with you. He is on a leash. He has very limited power. He has great power compared to us, but very limited power, all delegated from God. Let me remind you, church, uh, just we need to, to keep it in our minds. Satan is not God's counterpart because God has no counterpart. God is... The infinite triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is infinitely up there. No one else is his counterpart. No one else can even be compared to him. That's why we say that God is incomparable. Incomparable. No one can be compared to him. He is so great. The counterpart of Satan or Lucifer is the leading archangel, Michael. They're way down here. We're a little bit further down. So, um, uh, Lucifer is just a tiny angel has been given some power for a time before he's going to be banished forever in judgment. Keep that in mind. He has no power over you that you don't give him. He has to come to God and ask him. Now, you, you might think, okay, Satan is coming to God to ask permission at times for his demons to attack us and devour us. Why doesn't God just say no? Why didn't God just say no to Satan in Job 1 and 2? I don't know. I don't know, but I've got some ideas. Here's some ideas. Is that um, uh, Peter, think about Peter. Cocky, self I'll never deny you, Lord. You know, full of himself. But after he had failed and uh, received the grace of God, he is a warrior for the kingdom, dependent upon Christ. And he is fearless. God uses failure and temptation to bring humility and dependence and faith and courage in you and me. Um, we learn in the same school of suffering and pain and failure and temptation. And God allows us at times to be tempted so we can, um, so we can learn to depend upon the Lord and not ourselves. So he allows Peter to be tempted, but he's confident that Peter's going to come back. In fact, he says he's not even really going to fail in terms of a final failure. He says, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Well, that same night, he's going to deny the Lord three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. You know, just a wimp, just, just coward. He's going to deny him. But Jesus apparently looks at it as not really failure because he's going to come back. He's going to claim grace. He's going to go on with the Lord. 
No final failure. There's never has to be, failure never has to be final with you and me. Now, church, this is a very important thing uh, because you have failed and I have failed. There's nobody here who can rely on the fact that we got a spotless record, can we? We've all failed. That's why we need a Savior. And the whole thing of the gospel is not that we are good boys and bad boys, but that we got a great Savior. And He substituted for us. And He paid the way. Okay, church, you failed. I failed. Some of your fails have been really egregious and ugly. And some of them have been smaller. Some of you, you have failed, and uh, that is how you see yourself. You see yourself in light of that failure. And you feel like, you know, I'm a second-class Christian. God will never really use me. God is still mad at me. And, and you're kind of on the shelf. And what you're doing is playing along with Satan's uh, plans to devour your soul. You are listening to Satan's voice. God doesn't love you. God's through with you. God will never use you. Boy, what a failure. Man, you had that divorce. You were an addict. You, you still struggle with that. You, had, you, had, uh, you were a lousy parent. Uh, on and on and on. There's no shortage, are there? Judas and Peter betrayed Jesus on the same night before he's crucified. Peter, Judas did it in a more active way, but they both betrayed the Lord. They, neither one were faithful. Judas listened to the lies of Satan and committed suicide in his guilt. Peter knew that God's grace is always greater than his sin. And he received the grace of God, and he became a champion of grace. Church, the greatest men and women in the Bible are, are not people who have never failed, but they are people who have failed, and they have received the grace of God, and they have become champions of grace. They love the grace of God. Think of David, the greatest man in the Old Testament, perhaps. A murderer, an adulterer, but he's a champion of grace. God's grace is bigger. Think of, besides Jesus, the greatest man in the New Testament, Paul, a murderer, a blasphemer, hated Jesus, but he became a champion of grace. Friends, you and I are not to be proud of our record of religiosity and churchianity, but we are to be champions of the grace of God in Christ. Revel in it. Revel in it. Church, that other thing is a religious thing. That's a religious spirit. It's a, it's a satanic thing that caters to pride. We say no with that. We revel in the gospel of grace. He died, he died for me. He paid my sin. He rescued me. And we revel in it. Church, God doesn't use people who've never failed. God uses people like you and me who have failed greatly. But we know that God's grace is greater. Every man and woman in the, in the Bible have failed miserably. Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Joseph, Paul, Peter, on and on and on. And the reason, I'm sure, this passage in the Bible is to show that the very man that God uses as the head of the early church, when he left the planet, the man he left in charge was a man who failed greatly. A bit later, well, Peter protests in the passage when Jesus says, you know, when you fail, you're going to turn back and, you know, I'm going to use you then, strengthen your brothers. Peter protests in 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You know, so it's full of such confidence and self-reliance. I'll never betray you. 
Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Probably within an hour, uh, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas. There's a church over that house today. You can go see it in Jerusalem, that courtyard where Peter follows the Lord at a distance because he loves him and he longs for him, but yet he's going to keep his distance so he doesn't get in any trouble. And then a bit later in the narrative, we see what happens. 54, then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them, scared to death. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And he was broken of his proud self-reliance. And your and my proud self-reliance needs to be broken also. And when we fail... We have an opportunity to trust in the grace of Christ. And the Bible says that when our sin abounds, grace superabounds. It's even greater. And you have never sinned beyond God's ability to forgive. Now, church, you failed just like I have. Are you going to wallow in your self-pity and your proud guilt? I, I'm too, I'm, uh, you know, I just can't believe I did that. I'm just, you know, so good. Are you going to wallow, I say, in your proud guilt? Or are you going to say, no surprise here, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you claim the grace of God. Have you been taken completely out of the, the whole purpose and reason you're on the planet to serve Jesus and to advance the kingdom because you're wallowing in your guilt? Or when you have gotten up again, are you ready to strengthen your brothers and serve the Lord because now you're ready to be used? Church, don't listen to the lie of Satan. Listen to the voice of God. My grace is greater than your sin. And when you get up again, strengthen your brothers. That is God's call to you. And church, if, uh, if you've been wallowing in any guilt, God says let it go today. Today. You can be a hearer of God's word or you can be a doer. And say, okay, God, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to claim grace and I'm going to move on. And be all out for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to enjoy it. You in? You in? Church, this is the gospel. It's not religion. This is the gospel. Thank God for the gospel. Stand with me. All right. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ and received that grace, do it now. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. He'll do it. He'll do it. Lord, for the rest of us. Lord, these two challenges to servanthood, to an extensive mindset of servanthood, and then, Lord God, to this uh, perspective on failure, Lord, what does that mean for us? Lord, guide us to be champions of your grace 
and, and, and therefore be servants of other people. Lord, we are, we are so grateful for your forgiveness and love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.